Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University. I'm joined by Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University, as we tackle a busy week in politics. Michael, how are you doing this week? I'm doing okay. How about you, Trey? Well, I am slowly but surely becoming a Sooner, so uh, I guess the sooner, the better. Oh, 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 we're going to just uh, move on and pretend you didn't say that, I think. <laughs> I didn't sing anything from like Oklahoma, so I'm saving that for a future week. Yes, yes, let's save that. <laughs> <laughs> so this week, I think one of the overarching stories has been the legacy and the passing of Senator McCain, and then obviously a number of the more petty questions that I think and larger, more substance questions that has come out of it. So, Michael, what do you think is the legacy of John McCain in the political system as a senator? And to what extent do you think uh, his passing has had any kind of impact this week on the political system? Well, you know, I've been doing a lot of thinking about that this last week, Trey. I I actually was uh, a big fan of John McCain uh, well, for, for a long time. I remember very well his 2000 presidential candidate. In fact, that was the first and only presidential campaign I've ever uh, uh, given, donated to, essentially. Got the T-shirt, the whole bit, and I was, I was on board with John McCain. And I think the reason why is why I sort of appreciated him for his whole career is John McCain is, is sort of a dying breed. Read. Uh, I heard somebody describe him as sort of a romantic Republican, and I sort of like that idea. And I think what it has to do with is this sense that duty, honor, and country were 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 words, were phrases that had real meaning and and gave direction to his life and what he did in politics in a way that we just don't see a whole lot anymore when it's now it's just sort of angling for strategic advantage and that sort of thing and it's which is not to say that John McCain didn't do some of that but but you know he's he to me represents a very different era in the Senate as well. I uh, a much less polarized era. You know, I went I went and looked back. John McCain came into the Senate, and I believe it was 1987. Uh, and if we look at, and you'll be familiar with this tray, if we look at uh, voting patterns in the Senate, what you see is that the polarization really started to pick up around a decade ago, or you know, around 2008, 2009, and through there, and. 57 of the current members of the Senate came into office after then. So they've never never really known that sort of Senate that was, you know, where people work together and that sort of thing. And that was the Senate that John McCain came into. Uh, and, and, you know, there was also this era in the 80s when McCain really first came into the Senate, which was much less partisan. And right now there are only like six, I counted current senators who actually remember that era, which, you know, I think for me, it was a much better era when, when things got done and things weren't so incredibly negative and polarized. And, you know, I think John McCain's passing just as one more senator from that era who's gone just at that time, unfortunately, is, is now a time of the past. And that makes me uh, really sad. No, and I think that one of the things that's interesting about McCain, now I, I fall into a slightly different category. You know, when he was running for president, I did not own the T-shirt. Um, 
but that didn't mean that you had to think that he was a, a horrendous individual to disagree with his uh, policies. But I think one of the things that's fascinating about McCain that is a positive part of his legacy was when he was running, uh, one of the questions that kind of uh, ran around, I don't remember, remember this, but he, there was a suggestion that he might actually have a Democrat as his, on his vice presidential ticket. Yep. And Joe had, Lieberman. Exactly. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it came so close that a, a good friend of mine, I still have it in my office, uh, made a fake cover of National Review that says, what in the world? And it has uh, McCain picking Joe Lieberman because <laughs> they thought that was going to be the that was going to be the pick. You know, and I don't think that there are many candidates who that story would have had any legs because who would ever have you know, what what other candidate would there have been any kind of even probable possibility that they would have picked somebody from the other party to be their vice presidential candidate. And right. I think on that kind of front that you see the kind of individual that McCain was. So even if you don't or did not agree with his policies, I think it's really difficult to think of him as being anything but somebody who was constantly doing what he thought was best, not for himself, uh, but for the institution and legacy of his country. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I also thought it was interesting, I don't know if you know this, uh, that uh, it turns out that McCain and Ted Kennedy, of course, both died of brain cancer, and it was on the exact same day, nine years apart, uh, which uh, which was a bizarre sort of coincidence. But of course, McCain worked with Kennedy, and, and, and certainly they were, they didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. Uh, but but that was that was the sort of Senate that we had back in the day when, when, you know, when they could do that, even when, you know, presidents could work with senators of the other party. And now the idea that that would happen just seems to be just it totally, totally bizarre. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I think it allows us to his passing allows us to reflect on is that, you know, I think sometimes when we talk about the past and versus the present and there's things in the present that we don't like or that we wish could be different. The present isn't a fixed substance, right? And so the changes that the way we vote now will have impacts on the future. And I think one of the things that when we, we have moments of pause, when we look back at a longer time frame, so when you're talking about, you know, the 80s when McCain comes in and do we like or not like the, the shifts, it's easy to always think because we're stuck in it in a sense of the present as being a fixed substance, but of course, we can't look backwards and say, look how things are different if we assume that the future will always be identical to the way that it is now. And so in these kinds of moments, we might want to ask ourselves, what changes could we make in the present so that when we look back again, right? So when the next senator passes, that we might be able to say, well, look how much better things are in this, on this metric this time. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's, but yeah, I, I, maybe you're a little more optimistic than I am, Trey. I don't know. Or maybe I'm just having a pessimistic week. I, I would like to think that that's possible, but this is one of my weeks where I, I, I wonder about that sort of thing though. Uh, one other thing I, although I did want to mention is, you know, Joe Biden, of course, gave, gave one of the uh, eulogies at the, at the Arizona service. And uh, boy, Joe Biden to me represents the kind of person I would, I would love to have an, as a Democrat, I would love to have the opportunity to vote for. 
for. But the fact that Joe Biden is 74 years old is uh, a bit uh, scary to me. But he's the sort of kind of moderate-ish, sort of happy warrior type of guy who I, that that's the sort of person who I, I, I love to, to support. And I think John McCain was, you know, very much like that, but it's getting harder and harder to find those people. And I think, you know, I, I, I certainly share your hope that there could be more of these people, but gosh, it's sure hard to see how that is going to happen. It happens one voter at a time. Yeah. I suppose you're right, Trey. You know, like I said, I, I'm not trying to be a, a big downer, but uh, but but yeah, maybe maybe just the fact that of his passing is sort of making it hard for me to be a little optimistic. But I hope you're right, certainly. No, and I agree. And I, I understand that this week has been a tough one. As a matter of fact, I think that it was a really hard one for, I'm not sure about for you, but at least for me, it was a really hard one to engage on social media this week for me because of the number of just kind of horrendous supportings of outlandish claims about McCain. And it just made you want to shake your head and say, you know, sometimes you see things like that and you think, hmm, maybe free speech. How well does this work? <laughs> so I, I understand that. But uh, uh, this, that's, I think that's one of the reasons we try to do a show like this. Yeah, you know, I, what reminds me of it, this was a, a famous moment from, I don't know, famous, but uh, a moment from in the 2008 presidential campaign when, of course, McCain was taking his second shot at, at the presidency, uh, running against uh, running against Barack Obama. Uh, and he was doing a, a town hall or some kind of a meeting. And, and uh, one woman in the crowd said that, you know, that, that Obama was a was a uh, an Arab, I think she called him, and she didn't trust him. And and McCain uh, responded to the effect of, "No, that that's wrong. He's uh, he's a good family man. He's a good American who loves his country. We just fundamentally disagree on some things." And that's the sort of thing that you just don't hear as much of. And that's what made me love John McCain. Yeah, that's that was an amazing kind of moment when you juxtapose it with uh, the kind of personal attacks that the current occupant of the White House. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't I don't want to get into that whole, you know, did he or didn't he ordered the flag to be run back up again or something like that. And I'm yeah. sure listeners know what we're talking about. But that seems to be just a sort of petty, vindictive sort of thing that just makes me makes me despair. But anyway. Well, uh, on that, I am uh, sure that there are many people who are still mourning his passing, and we hope that uh, his family, not that we know them personally, uh, is has comfort as time moves forward. Yeah. And I think it's time for us to move forward as well from that kind of sad note on the passing of John McCain to talking about some policy. And I think the big policy this week, Michael, has been the NAFTA renegotiation, um, or might be called the do away with NAFTA two bilateral agreements or the NAFTA 2.0. There's a lot of kind of questions lingering out here. But the short version is, is the United States and Mexico uh, reached an quote unquote understanding on several critical uh, trade issues while they were talking in bilateral talks. Um, Canada is now back and re-engaged in some talks, but that actually broke the Friday deadline. Now, Congress is unlikely to suddenly start uh, calling out on this, but it's interesting because we now have the NAFTA is, is, is 
potentially either going to go away or come back in a, in a new form. And so, Michael, one of the things that I, this has kind of made me wonder, and I'm curious about your take, is a lot of listeners on the right, and I think even yourself a few weeks ago said, well, I really, really hope that uh, Donald Trump's kind of seemingly erratic trade policy, maybe it will lead to something better. So is Mexico and Canada willing to come to the table? Is this a potential win for Trump? How do you how do you see that playing out here? Yeah, I, I've got some <clears throat> thoughts on that. But yeah, just quickly for listeners who aren't clear about the deadline thing, I wanted to because I, I was a little unclear about it as well at first. So what uh, uh, what, what you're referring to, Trey, of course, is that uh, uh, there's no real deadline deadline. The, the idea here is that they want to have an agreement in place and ready to go. So the current president of Mexico can sign it. And the new the president elect takes office on December 1st. And the way this works is that uh, once the president announces a deal, he has to give Congress 90 days notice before this officially starts. And that meant that Friday was the deadline for that 90 days to come before December 1st, essentially, and so that everyone could still be on board. But it turns out that that's a little bit softer of a deadline. And the reason why is that even though the deadline was, well, yesterday, because we're taping on Saturday, actually, uh, uh, President Trump, the administration, sent notification to Congress because they have an additional 30 days to actually send the text of the agreement. So they're sort of finessing that deadline thing. So basically, the real deadline comes in another month. And so the, I, the hope is that Canada will, will you know, get on board uh, within within a month on that, and then it'll still be okay before that December 1st thing. So, um, but I just wanted to clarify that. My sense of things, though, I guess my main reaction to this is that, once again, you know, it, it shows me that Donald Trump is not a free trader. And, uh, you know, if you look at some of the main parts of this Canada or so this Mexico agreement, which we don't have the text of, we only have, you know, some some outlines and that sort of thing, at least of the final agreement. Uh, a couple of things that the provision that 40 to 45 percent of cars made under this new agreement have to be made by workers making at least $16 an hour. And immediately I thought, well, wait a minute. This is being pushed by a Republican president. The Republican Party is the same party that says, my God, minimum wage laws are awful things. And so Orthodox Republicans should hate this because it's the same logic that is, you know, the same argument against raising or even having a federal minimum wage. So this is a this is kind of a protectionist type of thing. This is definitely not a free trade sort of sort of thing. And, you know, this this sixteen dollars an hour is like uh, up to four times as much as what some Mexican auto manufacturers currently pay. Uh, so, uh, you know, that'll be interesting to see how that's how well that's enforced. But I I wanted to get your take as a libertarian. I mean, this is essentially, uh, you know, this is this is not free trade in any ways. What some uh, some liberals are uh, call fair trade, that but it's a very different sort of thing. But as a libertarian, what's your take on this? Well, I wish that I could say that I was surprised, but Donald Trump is not a free trader. He is not an open market man, and. Of all of the things that he said or not said, this is the one that he has been the most singularly focused 
Uh, I mean, at no point has he ever kind of waffled back and forth on the, oh, we're going to, he's always about the better deal. And the implied assumption is, is that when you're openly trading with somebody, you're getting a bad deal unless you can get in your own provisions. Uh, and so it's been fascinating to me on this front because I agree with you. I mean, what you see happening here, which again, we need to put a caveat on a caveat in, uh, you know, what we're getting from is from sources inside the negotiations, right? And then some of the basic kind of outlines of it, uh, because the text of the deal isn't available yet. We can't look at it like you were just saying. So from my point of view, I think that this is a horrendous step backwards. It's a big step backwards in the sense that we are increasing. Part of this is the idea that we need to have more percentages of vehicles and other things have to be produced in the United States. Well, that just means you're going to be driving up costs on things. And that's not good for the average consumer here in the United States. But again, yeah, I'd love, I'm not let's shocked. Be clear. This is, yeah, this is a tax on consumers. I mean, that's what it boils down to from a libertarian perspective, well, from an economic perspective, that that cost increase is going to be passed on to people who are buying cars. And this is into an environment where we're already having costs being passed down from the China increases. So, you know, these are going to add up in real ways. And I think that it will be, it's not going to be now that people start to realize the impact that this is going to have on their bottom lines. Yeah, and and this is a this is not a progressive tax. This is a uh, you know this is essentially a, a tax that's going to have greater impacts on people who are at the lower end of the uh, of the income scale who are buying new vehicles uh, for for the most part. I, w- I would argue. And you know another thing I wanted to point out is that uh, also this week. The, and this is related, the European Union said uh, essentially, well, you know what, why don't we just do away with tariffs on all of our vehicles, on U.S. vehicles, Europe, European vehicles, Europe, and the Trump administration's response was, well, no, because we want to sell more vehicles. We don't, I mean, and so they, they basically called his bluff, and the administration said, well, no, because we're not actually about free flow of goods and services. We're about uh, essentially this, you know, this win-lose type of situation, and that's, uh, and that like I said, that to me is just incredibly short-sighted. It it, it suggests a, a complete lack of understanding of why free trade in the long run is better for everyone. And uh, uh, but again, just like you, I am not surprised at all. Well, and, and one of the questions that a lot of listeners ask me is, well, why don't you end up siding with Democrats more often? And the answer is, well, if Republicans keep acting like this, I'll have to because they're going to have the same exact trade policies. Um, I mean. When Bernie Sanders was talking about wanting to dismantle NAFTA, this is exactly what he was talking about. They just use different kinds of language. But I'm just shocked that rank and file Republicans are going to go along with this. I mean, yeah. Donald Trump doing it does not surprise me. But having if this actually gets ratified, and that's fascinating to me that that Republicans are going to flip so hard, and I wonder if they're even going. Do they realize or are they just is it for political gain here that they're basically taking the Sanders foreign policy position on trade? And and, and that to me is is an interesting part of it as well, because it like like I said before, Orthodox Republicans should hate this this idea, what this what this stands for. And I guess my you know, I start to wonder, uh, well, this is the kind of deal that actually you would expect to see a, a, a Democrat, a left of center president propose and does 
does ideological orthodoxy mean anything anymore? Or is it just all about winning, you know, building an electoral coalition and uh, the heck with what we're supposed to stand for? We stand for winning elections, apparently, you know, and that that's a real bummer. Well, and it would be an interesting historical capper on either side, right? Because NAFTA is going to go into effect by a Democratic president who ran on basically a worker platform, Bill Clinton, and then ends up instituting NAFTA or signing signing NAFTA. And then on the other end, we might very well end up with a Republican president undoing it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And putting it and back to the worker position on the other side, which, which yeah. goes to your point, which is just a fa- it would be a fascinating book ends on that. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I should point out that one thing that President Trump is absolutely right about is Canada's dairy uh, tariffs, which is it's pretty it's pretty crazy. They have this dairy supply management system, essentially, which is just like very serious quotas. It was this whole thing designed to really take care of Canada's domestic dairy industry. And it's it totally goes against what free trade is all about, but it has such strong support from a pretty powerful block in Canada that that's unlikely to go anywhere. So certainly Canada. Canada is not this, you know, aggrieved party in all of this. That's a huge problem. And, you know, whenever whenever Donald Trump is right about something, uh, I feel it's important to, to point it out. So just so as people don't think I just decide reflexively that if Donald Trump is for it, I must be against it because on the dairy program, he's absolutely right. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is keep in mind, I don't think any of these free trade agreements, every Every single element of them is perfectly free trade. I mean, in an ideal yeah. world, is libertarian. Yeah. That's what I would like. Um, but when you're mo- the hope is always to be moving in that direction. Of course, yeah. and you've got to be Absolutely. pragmatic. Um, so I think you're right. You've got to you've got to take it and say, well, what direction in general is this trade agreement moving towards? Right, as yeah. opposed to is everything in it exactly? Um, but. Yeah. Well, moving to a little bit less of Hey, a- Trey, before we move on, just I totally forgot. Sorry about that. But I was hoping we could, we could thank we have a new supporter this week. So do you mind if we take a minute? We need to take a minute for that. Absolutely. Yes. Well, that's great. Well, uh, our, new, our newest supporter is Michelle. Michelle's our uh, newest monthly contributing supporter on Patreon. We really appreciate that, Michelle. Thank you so much for, uh, for helping us keep the show going. Uh, and of course, you know, when you do, uh, contribute to the show as a financial supporter. Not only do you have that uh, the knowledge that you are keeping us in uh, in microphones and and server space and all that stuff we absolutely need to do, but also you get our supporters bonus show. Last week, Jay and I were doing the show and we talked about uh, well uh, the escalating trade war between the U.S. and China. Speaking of trade, uh, international agreements, and also that whole Donald Trump versus Jeff Sessions thing. Uh, this week, I know Trey, you and I. I have some good stuff lined up so that there's that so uh so yeah again thanks michelle and if you want to join michelle just go to politicsguys.com uh slash support that's a direct link or just politicsguys.com and you'll see the support links and we really do appreciate it yes we do i mean it's that is what makes it happen so on to the next story which is trump decided to take on google 
Now, this is fascinating for a number of reasons, not so much because Trump decided to go after somebody. I mean, all you have to do is like look at his Twitter feed for 30 seconds. And and he has been a particularly active Twitter user this week. Um, So we're not going to we're not trying to focus on all of this. But what's particularly interesting about this story is that oftentimes uh, when politicians come out against companies, it is generally best practice for the company to just say nothing. They don't generally respond. They don't enter into the political conversation in that sense, in general. However, this time, after Donald Trump basically tweets out, stop the bias, that Google was giving top billing for States of the Union addresses for Obama and not for him, Google basically wrote back and said, well, one, buddy, you don't understand what kind of address you had, and two, we've been doing this forever, so there is a really fascinating, uh, just the fact that they were going to come back and come back in such a harsh way against Trump. So what do you think about what, this is the tip of a a large iceberg of complaints between Donald Trump and uh, major uh, companies. What do you think about Google's approach to this and what it means that Trump continues to come after them? Well, I guess my initial response to the, the president's uh, attacks that is is uh, that word rigged. He loves the word rigged, and it's a word that sets my teeth on edge. I got to tell you, Trey, because it just basically it, it you know that's his move. That's his first move is to call into question the legitimacy of anything that attacks Donald Trump, or that suggests Donald Trump is anything other than this you know perfect perfect person who whose every idea is brilliant essentially, and and. That to me is fundamentally why I have a problem with Donald Trump, not so much policy, though gosh knows there's a ton of stuff with that, but that he's so willing to call into question the legitimacy of anything, he does far more than any other politician. And, you know, obviously he doesn't know how search works. Uh, obviously, you know, he he just was simply wrong. And it, that's another irony in this. And he's willing to call this stuff rigged and wrong and fake news. Yet in his own Twitter feed, he constantly links to things that are just simply not true, clearly, verifiably not true. So, I mean, you want to look at a purveyor of rigged and fake news, you have to go no further than the president of the United States who does it all the time. And I think Google needed to respond to this because, I, you know, I, they, well, they've been under attack for a lot of reasons. And I think rightly in some ways, uh, you know, a few weeks ago on the show, we talked about Google and antitrust and so forth. And, you know, it's something like eight out of 10 searches in the web searches in the U.S. go through Google. And that's a that's a big deal. Now, it's a big deal in part because nobody outside of Google knows how their search algorithm works. And that's understandable from Google's standpoint because that's a proprietary trade secret. And Google doesn't want Bing, for instance, to know how it works because they don't want Bing search to be, they don't want to help them out. And and I guess to me, one interesting thing about this is, again, if you're an Orthodox Republican, the idea that that Anyone in government, including especially the president of the United States, should be saying, well, we're going to be looking at this, telling this what telling this business how it should run its business and what kind of algorithms it should use and how what kind of results it should give to people. My God, that's 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 massive interference of 
government into the private sector, and that should that should set every Orthodox Republican or Libertarian's teeth on edge. And yet the Republican can, you know, the, the president can blithely say this, and his chief economic advisor can say, oh, we're going to look into this. <laughs> but, but God, man, there's a First Amendment here, and there's this whole idea that government should stay out of this anyway and and yet again up is down black is white you know it's just crazy town no i completely agree and what's interesting particularly this week is i think that google got a pass because donald trump sucked up all the oxygen in this fight because the Ah. thing that happened this week and i think this is actually one of the reasons that google responded i really do this week it came to light a deal between Google and MasterCard that MasterCard data was getting funneled back to Google so that they could put your searches together with your purchases. And that had not been properly disclosed. So if I'm Google and that comes out, I'm actually going to be sitting there going, woohoo, thank you, Trump, for coming after us or something stupid, because then we're going to look kind of awesome if we come back at you. And I have noticed very few outlets picked up um, outside the uh, kind of the techie outlets that I follow, uh, that MasterCard has been the first credit card to enter into an agreement with a, uh, a um, social giant like like uh, Google. Yeah. I totally missed that. That is that is really interesting. And and it gets to the, the larger point, I think, is people tend to focus on the ideological bias or, or lack thereof. But, you know, given how we what we know about how these things work, I would say that's not the real issue. That's not certainly not the thing that scares me. The thing that the thing that scares me is what's being done with our data, uh, you know, behind the scenes, things that we don't come anywhere close to appreciation, like like, for instance, that MasterCard deal, that sort of thing. And that's why I actually think that Google does need to be looked at a lot more closely along the lines of what the European Union did, because when we're giving one entity so much data and so much control over our everyday lives, I think a certain enhanced scrutiny is important, you know, and uh, and certainly not getting that. And that's a that's a major concern to me. Agree. And, and from the libertarian point of view, I think the thing that's even more concerning is, is that these kinds of deals are not public, right? It's one thing to enter into agreements. So maybe you say, okay, fine, I want, uh, I'm okay with Google having this and I want a MasterCard that allows them to do that. Uh, but the fact that these kinds of things are not disclosed, that's not a free market issue. Uh, that that <laughs> And as, as a result, I think that's the kinds of problems that unfortunately, get buried because they're not nearly as sexy as what's happening on Donald Trump's Twitter feed and that kind of back and forth between uh, a company and Trump. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I says I say think fundamentally that that these algorithms and that we're sort of giving gradually giving up our life to are making us less and less free in ways that the vast majority of people simply don't understand. And I can see this sort of dystopian future when we, you know, look back 10, 15 years and say, oh my God, how did this happen? And uh, again, this is me just being really dark this week. I think I was pretty dark the last time we were out. I don't know. It's not you, Trey, I promise. <laughs> but, uh, but, but yeah, this is really uh, sort of, uh, I've really gotten in 
really interested in this lately, and we'll, something we'll be talking about maybe a little bit on the on the bonus show. But this is one example where I think you know, I, and you know, this week, for instance, uh, Senator Hatch suggested that the FTC should investigate Google, and I think there's maybe something to that. You know, uh, that uh, again, we need to be a little more cautious about uh, how much power these behind the scenes power these entities are having. But the idea that Google is rigging the system against Donald Trump is, I think, is uh, somewhat ludicrous. But there are deeper and more fundamental concerns to worry about here, I think. Agreed. And it's interesting because this actually kind of leads us to our next topic. Uh, now, you and Jay had talked about this a little bit, but there has been some uh, additional developments on that, and that's 3D printed guns. Uh, yeah. On Monday, a federal court in Washington blocked uh, Cody Wilson's company called Defense Distributed, which is a fascinating name, um, from putting his 3D printed gun schematics online. Now, he's going to actually end up doing that anyway, but the way he's going to be doing it is by charging a fee for them because that actually puts it into a a slightly different category. Now, one of the interesting takes on this, and as a matter of fact, I don't always recommend this, but for listeners, if you want kind of an interesting take on the details, the technical side of this, I actually recommend heading to Slate. Slate has a really fascinating um, take, and it's not really generally Slate. You're kind of thinking of a, a political take, but they're going to have a, uh, a very technical take on this. And it's interesting because one of the problems with the rulings that have come so far is that they are couched in language that is from the 1990s and doesn't really take into effect what's happening now. So, Michael, I know we've been talking about this before, but now we have this kind of new take on 3D printed guns. It's out there. We've got the states are suing. What do you think? You know, I'm I'm torn on this. I, I certainly understand people's concern with it. Uh, and, you know, the administration's position, uh, they, they pretty clearly said that, you know, undetectable guns that you can make in a 3D printer, they're already illegal and they're committed to enforcing that law. And so, you know, I think they see it pretty clearly as, as a First Amendment and individual freedom type of issue. And, and I get that. I get that position. And I'm a big, I'm a strong supporter of, of the First Amendment, too. But you know, the more I thought about it, you know, and I read, you know, uh, portions at least of, of Judge uh, Lasnik's ruling, and, you know, he points out that, and, and I'll just read a bit of it. He said, the court finds that the irreparable uh, burdens on private defendants' First Amendment rights are dwarfed by the irreparable harms the states are likely to suffer if the existing restrictions are withdrawn. And what he's getting at here, I think, is an important point, is that none of these rights are absolute. And there's always this balance that the courts need to need to weigh, you know, when constitutional rights are being abridged. And to me, there's no question. I mean, how can you have a question that First Amendment rights are being abridged here? But when that happens, the court needs to apply strict scrutiny, you know, with that burden of proof being on the state to show how that there's this clearly overriding public need to deny uh, that right that's being, you know, that's being abridged. And that's a really tough legal standard to meet. And I don't know, I think, like I said, I, I, I have a lot of trouble with this because uh, as a strong supporter of the First Amendment, but this idea that 3D printed guns, you know, are out there. But then, then again, and this is what Jay and I talked about, the, the idea that 
is this, it, can you really stop this sort of thing, you know? And are you doing damage to the First Amendment, essentially, by trying to stop something that can't be stopped? I mean, you suggested already that, uh, that, they're, that they're finding a way to get around this by charging for it. And given how information gets out on the internet, I mean, is this a, is this going to practically do anything? And, and I don't know. It's it's certainly a, a scary future. And, you know, as Jan and I talked about uh, last time, right now, to be able to print a, a really viable 3D printed gun, you need a pretty extensive setup. It's not like you can go to, you know, Staples and buy a 3D printer and you're, no. you're good to go or something like that. This is to buy a really good 3D printed gun or make one. You're talking, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, that kind of thing. And honestly, there are just a lot, a lot of other cheap, almost undetectable guns out there already that, you know, this isn't really an issue for now. This is more an issue, I would say, for five, ten years in the future, where the technology will certainly become more affordable and much better. Yeah, so, because even as it stands right now, a plastic gun that you're printing is not finished until you've put in metal parts. I mean, at yeah. a minimum, you have to have a metal firing pin, and there's no, there's no way around that right now. Yeah. And, and, you know, that when guns that have been built, even all plastic, they, they uh, sometimes blow up which, you know, isn't something you want with a gun, certainly. And so, so yeah, this is not a, this is not a sort of a, an immediate threat to public safety in a way, you know, I think some people think, oh, does that mean I can just print a gun? Well, not really exactly, but which is why I know maybe listeners say, well, well, geez, Mike, don't you have a, I mean, have come out on some side of this thing. And it's just a real, it's a real struggle for me because I feel that these two very important things are intention here uh you know that again this this public safety sort of thing which i don't see as a clear and present danger right now but i do see it as one in the near term future potentially given how technology works but i guess because i don't see it as a clear and present danger threat right now that's why i tend to err on the side of the first amendment here which is why i think why i think i sort of support the trump administration's view on this which is weird this is the second thing in this in this show i've said you know i kind of support the president on this first with the canada dairy things and now this so it's not going to be coming a you know a stealth trumpian or is anything this why like you've been that feeling bad this week that you're agreeing I, too I, much with the trump administration? i don't know you know i didn't sleep really well last night maybe something's affecting my thinking i don't know but 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 yeah, so I guess that in the end, this is where I come down. That's where I came down when Jay and I talked about the last time, saying that I, I think actually the Trump administration's handling of this, I tend to support that a little more than how the Obama administration did. And for listeners who didn't catch that show, basically what happened is the reason why this became a thing now is that the Obama administration basically put a halt to their printing this, but the Trump administration entered into an agreement with the uh, was it defense distributed so yes. they could print these things? And I think, you know, again, the First Amendment's awfully important to me. I don't think it's really all that important to the president, exactly, given that <laughs> our last story. But in this case, I think, you know, even a broken clock's right twice a day, I think. And so I think the president, uh, the administration's stance on this is, is, is the right one. But I certainly understand people who would say otherwise. Well, I kind of like, I was thinking about this, and I think one of the ways to try to figure out how ought we to consider when you have something so new, how we ought to consider that is to look at something that used to be new 
and look how it went through a similar potential process. And I think there's oh, two yeah. examples. One, now again, I recognize listeners that this is not a perfect analogy, but pornography. This is an issue where you had states were regulating it and its ability to be regulated was shifted because of an online uh, distribution model. And it comes along with, while we're not talking about uh, the kind of harm that we are with uh, 3D printed guns, nevertheless, a kind of uh, potential harm that many people saw as being potentially devastating to communities. Now, again, I'm not saying that I agree with that as a libertarian, but that doesn't mean that that wasn't the same kind of values that were being held by the people at the time. And I think one of the things you have to be careful of is to note that you need to make sure that your regulatory system, whatever that's going to be, actually matches what can happen in your technological realm. And I think pornography was an area where technology leapfrogged the regulatory framework so quickly that it was it never really caught up in a real way. I mean, even today, yeah. if you're yeah. going to log in, I mean, who knows what their uh, obscenity standards are in their particular state? And has that ever once prevented anybody from, you know, downloading right. pornography if they wanted yeah, to? Yeah. So the question here becomes is, is no matter what I think government's stance on the First Amendment issue is, you're going to have access to these schematics online. So I think the better question to ask is you can either become the irrelevant law, which is what happened in the case of pornography, or you can say, well, what what kinds of outcomes do we actually want and what are t what would be actually technologically feasible to regulate mm -hmm. to make those happen? Yeah, and I think that's where we need to be focused. And I think that's where the court needs to be focused. It needs, and this is not an easy thing for a court to do because it's what a court does is look at the past to make decisions about what you ought to do in a present case. But in this particular instance, I think you really have to look and say, what will be the future <laughs> and rule from that position? Because otherwise right. you're going to end up with a bunch of things that are statutes. But if it's happening anyway, what's the point? So even if, even if you, even if the court ends up siding against uh, the distribution of guns, if it can't in fact technically prevent it, what have you done? Yeah, that's a that's a great point, Trey. I hadn't thought about that, but I think that's an excellent point. And so, you know, maybe maybe a, a better way to go about this would be, for instance, uh, more regulation or a certain type of regulation on three D printers that are capable of printing guns. You know, exactly. which is all of them. That kind that I really like that idea. You know, I was thinking also. Uh, I just. Uh, recently typed in, uh, maybe I shouldn't have done this, typed into Google, how to build a fertilizer bomb. And you know what happened? I, I mean, maybe agents will come to my home. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> but I got all kinds of, it was really easy. I could, if I wanted to, I could build a fertilizer bomb, you know, right away, I guess, if I just went and got some fertilizer, that sort of thing. But my, my point being is it's a, it's a similar kind of thing, right? The information is out there. Uh, and uh, so I think that the proper regulatory focus is on not trying to stop the flow of information, which, as you point out, is, is probably just going to make the law, you know, irrelevant and impossible to enforce. And that's a, that's an even bigger problem. Uh, rather, the focus on the outcomes. And I think that's a that's a great point, Trey. 
Well, thank you. Sometimes I can be uh, brilliant. No, <laughs> absolutely. I think so. Well, listeners, I want to let you know that as we get done here today, we are going to be filming our bonus show. So you still have time to get us on the bonus show if you head to politicsguys.com slash support or head to politicsguys.com and click on support. This is what makes the show keep going. So we hope that you liked what you heard. Please, even if you aren't subscribing, we ask that you will share episodes. You'll rate us on iTunes. Share us with friends and family. As always, you can get a hold of us at mail at politicsguys.com or facebook.com slash politicsguys where we have ongoing interesting debates or Twitter where we're at politicsguys. The executive producers are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorf, and Bruce Johnson. This episode was produced by Trey Orndorf. There'll be a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us then.